Have you ever wondered what might happen if you get sued by one of your clients and how to make sure that doesn't happen to you? You're listening to a new series from Advocus, the Financial Advisors Association of Canada, where we interview industry experts to help you raise the bar on your practice as a financial advisor. Today, we'll hear from Ellen Besner, litigation and regulatory defense lawyer, partner at Babin Besner Spry, and author of two books, The Best-Selling Advisor at Risk and its sequel, Communication Risk, available at babinbesnerspry.com. In this conversation, you'll learn how to protect yourself against lawsuits that might destroy your career and reputation, as well as what you should be on the lookout for when agreeing to take on a new account and what you can do now to improve communication and understanding with your clients. The other voice you'll hear, that's Christine, Associate Director of Education at Advocus. What are some of the common mistakes you see advisors making and what can they do right away to start correcting those mistakes? Unfortunately, both advisors and clients seem to rush through phone calls and meetings and there isn't an atmosphere of comfort created, but it's more kind of ticking off the list of what we need to get done. Regulators have been very clear that communication with your clients is not a tick-off-the-box exercise, even though the regulators have given us a form called the Know Your Client form, which is exactly a tick-off-the-box exercise. They need to get well behind each of the questions on the KYC form to create a dialogue with their clients to make sure that they have a very good understanding of what makes those clients tick and that the clients feel that they're not rushing and it isn't a tick-off-the-box exercise. There's an atmosphere of comfortable dialogue Clients can ask questions, and advisors are really listening to those questions and getting under the questions and making sure that they're speaking to clients in a way that the clients can understand. And each client is different. Each client needs a different way of communicating. So you need to figure out, advisors need to figure out what that client needs from them to understand what they're saying. We asked Ellen what might happen if an advisor only sticks to the initial KYC form and doesn't properly update client information through conversations with clients. She gave us two examples of how that could go wrong. Let's use a very simple example, client income. Normally, when you wanna know somebody's income, you ask them, what's your income? (laughs) Client says, whatever number. It could be within a range that's on the KYC form, or it could be that they fill it in. It's a certain number, right? And the advisor would believe, the advisor who is of the view that you just fill out the form would believe that he or she has filled out the form appropriately because the client gave them the number and they stuck it in. But what they don't know is, number one, is the client's memory of the number correct? Has the client considered any bonus Is the client on commission so that maybe their income fluctuates substantially month to month, year to year? How positive is the client about that number? There's been no exploratory work about the number. And so if the client later says, here's my income tax forms, judge or regulator, 
my income is either half or double, it doesn't even matter, it's wrong on the form, then that income tax return is going to be basically the truth as to what the client's income was. Now, the advisor will say, at least in the cases I've seen, but that's what the client told me, and that's why I put it in the form. But if they don't explore whether it's accurate in the first place or reliable, then they don't have the full picture. As well, income is an important aspect, not just today's income, but yesterday's income and the future income, particularly clients who are, say, saving for something or closer to retirement, want to engage an advisor to prepare a financial plan. You need to have all of this information to support whether or not that KYC form is accurate. And the regulators say it, and the firms are pleading with their advisors to make notes of the dialogue between advisor and client around the questions. Asking the question and getting the client to answer, number one, it's likely it's not accurate. Number two, you're not getting the full picture. I can use another example. One of the questions that judges and regulators consider to be fundamentally key is the client's financial knowledge or sophistication. Very often, an advisor will turn to the client and say, in respect to financial knowledge, are you nil, low, medium, or high? The client answers, whatever their answer is, and the advisor ticks it off on the form. Has done no exploration. The client, how would they know how sophisticated they are? They have no frame of reference. So if you just take the word for it and you tick it off and you have no support for it, later on when the client says to a judge or regulator, I didn't understand a thing the advisor was doing, I didn't understand my statements, and the advisor says, what are they talking about? When I filled out the form, I put medium knowledge because that's what they told me, right? And they have no evidence around it. They don't have any evidence of their history of investing. They don't have evidence of what they read about risk or what they watch on TV. Do they, do they watch the news? Do they check stocks on the live feeds? Do they get other reports from other analysts? Do they have other advisors who have educated them in the past? They have zero and so when a judge or regulator challenges an advisor on what's your evidence, they have zero to support their choices. And so when it comes to whether to believe a client who says, well, I really didn't understand anything, or an advisor who says, oh, but they did understand, I put them as medium knowledge for a reason, I just can't articulate what that reason is, they're going to believe the client. And the advisor, being the professional, is always the one who has to have a paper trail to prove their case. People might say, oh, well, isn't it innocent before proven guilty? They need to understand they have a license. The license is not theirs unless they can prove that they're entitled to it. So they need to make sure that their paper trail supports professionalism, a conscientious person, support for the information on the form.
So your book is titled Advisor at Risk, A Roadmap to Protecting Your Business. Why did you call it that? Advisors are at risk just like any other professional. It is absolutely key for them to build their business based on a strong foundation. To build a strong foundation, they need to have tools to use to prepare a paper trail to support things like the KYC, decisions in respect of choices of investments, and to prove later on that their clients understood what was going on in the account. And so to do all of that, they need to build a roadmap to protecting themselves and growing their business. They can choose whatever tools are best for them. There's lots of tools out there. They need to figure out what works for them and use those tools. For example, what I really wanted to learn how to do, I'm very good at typing and my handwriting is horrible. So what I really wanted to start doing is taking my notes while I'm on the phone, while I'm speaking to clients, typing them because they're easier to read and decipher. And I wear a headset, so I have both my hands free anyway. Why shouldn't I be able to do that? After 25 years of practice of handwriting my notes, like I, and, and they're really jot notes and they're really hard to read, but there's lots and lots of pages. Like if you and I had a long conversation, there'd be pages and pages and pages of this messy stuff. And I couldn't do it. I could not switch to typing. But, you know, that's life. I'm back to handwriting. And that's the tool that works best for me. That's the tool that's going to make sure that I'm taking those notes. So in whatever way that is going to encourage you to do it, then do it that way. There isn't a right way or a wrong way. Now, of course, there are these software packages that um, a lot of the securities dealers have. And after you get off the phone, if you could put your notes, your handwritten notes, you can scan them in and then type some notes around them, that's, that's to me the gold star. I haven't seen it yet in <laughs> all the litigation I've done and the regulatory defense. I haven't actually seen that yet. Um, I have seen close to it. And I can tell you those cases that are close to it, we close them down super quickly because we have the evidence to close them down. And again, that's not good for my business, but it's great for my clients and happy clients, happy lawyers. So, and it's the same thing with um, advisors. You know, sometimes, and there's been a lot of talk of conflicts of interest between clients and advisors. And um, advisors need to take those decisions that are best for their clients, just like I do, which aren't always best for the advisor. And at the end of the day, happy clients, happy advisor. They're going to refer matters to you. You're never going to be bored, I assure you. So I think that what they really need to think about is creating a really strong paper trail to build a great foundation for their business. As an Advocus member, you're automatically connected with your local chapter community. But did you know that Advocus members can also connect in to any chapter activities across Canada? Explore your chapter network for study groups, professional development support, volunteering, networking, and more. Be part of a culture that fosters ethics and professionalism. Advocus Chapters, supporting the advisor of the future.
Interviewing clients before they accept them is, I think, a very important step. Advisors should be critical about the clients they accept. They should be asking the right questions to make sure that they weed out the problem clients, the clients that are going to end up costing them money, either through reputational damage because the client will badmouth them or by issuing a complaint, which is, of course, costly because you have to deal with that. It's distracting. It's stressful. You have to hire lawyers. You have to, you know, spend more time with lawyers than you care to, which is more than zero. (laughs) Um, So in my first book, Advisor at Risk, A Roadmap to Protecting Your Business, I go through a number of questions that advisors should ask when a client, when they're first meeting with their clients or potential clients with their prospects. Just because another client has recommended them or the client, the the prospect gets their name, it doesn't mean that it's somebody they should take. They should be critical. They should ask questions that probe into why the client is leaving their advisor at the present time. Now, the client may say, I decided to try a discount account and that didn't work. I don't have an advisor. Or they might say something else like, I have an advisor, but they're not meeting my needs for any number of reasons. And so the advisor needs to think about whether the reason they're leaving their advisor is reasonable, whether the client has had an attempt or made an attempt to have discussions with their existing advisor about their disappointment, and whether or not the client's expectations from an advisor are reasonable, and what the risk is to the advisor of taking this client on. If a client says, I haven't saved enough for retirement and I wanna stop working, and the advisor crunches the numbers and sees that there isn't a chance that this person is going to make it to the rest of their life based on the money that they've saved, they need to have a very clear conversation with that client about the fact that they cannot fulfill their expectations. Once you have the client and there's problems, it is extremely stressful and much more difficult to send them away once their account is already opened with you and you already have their money in the account. What happens if you've taken on a client and then you realize afterwards that they are a problem client? The key is to not turn the client away at a time where there's aggravation in the relationship. So it is better to resolve the problematic issues and wait for a bit of peace and then have a discussion with the client in a calmer way than what could otherwise be if there was a lot of grief in the relationship at the time that you're trying to terminate the client. So, for example, if the client calls the advisor and says, you know, I'm really aggravated with you and they're yelling and screaming and you're the worst advisor because you didn't get me, you know, the 12% return that I wanted or expected. And this is the first time the client's ever mentioned 12%. And the advisor could turn to the client and say something like, you know what, Uh, I can't do that for you. So why don't you take a hike? And it isn't usually a peaceful, calm conversation. 
The key is to try to somehow calm the client down, not say anything that would disrupt them even more, and try and just calm the whole relationship down, wait a little while, and then have a face-to-face meeting with the client, and try and discuss what reasonable expectations would be, how the client has never mentioned 12% to you in the past, how given the client's risk tolerance and given the market that you don't have control over these things, and uh, speak to the client about possibly moving to somebody who they can find who would get them that. And you can say even there are products that might get you there, but they're not products that I'm prepared to put you in given your risk tolerance. But you might find an advisor who could do that. Then off they go and everybody's happy and they hopefully, you know, have left in a very peaceful way. And that's what you want. You want peace because clients who leave in aggravation or who you've offended are much more likely to complain. You want a client to leave quietly. As soon as a client even gives you an inkling that there might be a complaint, the advisor absolutely has to take that up the ranks in their dealer. And so sometimes uh, advisors don't do that and they're accused later on of not reporting a complaint. And it's really difficult because you don't want to raise red flags unnecessarily, but the implications of not raising the red flag when there's a possibility of a complaint, you know, better err on the side of reporting than being accused later on of not reporting. So if a client starts to express grief and aggravation with you, that might be an indication that there's a complaint coming and you want to document that with either your branch manager, your compliance officer, or both. Uh, There's a process in place at every dealer and every insurance, uh, you know, for every insurance agent or advisor or portfolio manager. So a complaint doesn't have to be in writing. Definitely not. The regulators have been very clear that a complaint can be oral or written. And in fact, regulators have been also very clear that dealers have to uh, report them into the regulator even if they're not in writing. So it's very stressful for an advisor because, you know, they're sitting at their desk. They're really stressed out from this conversation. And what might be very far from their minds is, do I have to tell anybody this or will this possibly go away? Because it would be so wonderful if it just goes away. And they don't even think about, well, to protect myself, I probably need to let at least my branch manager know what happened and document it. Because if you don't, you may be later accused of hiding it under the carpet, which is not permitted. In today's wealth planning world, being like everyone else won't cut it anymore. You need a superior line of attack, one that helps you deliver deeper knowledge to diagnose and overcome complex challenges. Are you ready to find your fears? Visit advocates.ca slash CLU today. So what would you say to an advisor who says, this is too much time, I don't have this kind of time with my clients? I would say, you know, the challenge will be that if any of your clients do issue a complaint 
And I mean something way short of suing, I'm just saying a simple complaint. They're not going to have the paper trail to support what they've done on the file, what they've done on the account. And so whatever the client says is going to be believed, and they won't have the professional paper trail that's expected of any professional, whether it be a doctor, a lawyer, or an advisor. When they're sued, it's the same problem. So when they get sued, if they don't have a paper trail, it's much more difficult to prove their case. It's not impossible, but it's more difficult, and it's more time-consuming. It takes a lot of time. It means that the case will go on for longer because there isn't a paper trail that I can send to the complaining client's lawyer and say, here's the paper trail. So your client is wrong and my client is right. So close down the file. What are the potential outcomes for an advisor that's been sued by a client? Assuming they have zero paper trail, the outcomes could be with the regulator. So, so a client will complain and maybe also sue. So with the regulator, if they can't prove that what the advice they gave to the client was either suitable or you know, whatever the challenge is, then they could have a financial penalty. If they've done something more serious, they could be suspended. If it's even more serious, they could be permanently barred. Um, and then there's costs of the regulator that they charge. So that's on the regulatory side. On the litigation side, um, most often there's a settlement. There isn't always, but very often there's a settlement. And it's, uh, a, you know, a check has to be written. And it depends on whether there's errors and omissions insurance or not. If there isn't errors and omissions insurance, then the dealer and the advisor have to look at the contract as between them. And most often the dealer contract says, with the advisor having signed it uh, when he first he or she first started with the dealer, that they're going to pay. So it would be the advisor that would presumably pay. And the costs of the lawyer, if they don't have E&O insurance, the same issue, they'd have to pay their own lawyer to defend them. These matters do not go away quietly, and they do not go away quickly. There's a lot of damage that's suffered throughout. But there's a piece that we haven't talked about yet, which is the reputational damage. Because the regulatory matters, even settlements with the regulator, are public. So when you're trying to grow your business, you meet with a new client, they're going to Google your name. And if you've had an issue with the regulator and it's been resolved even through a settlement, it's going to show up. And the client may think twice. Hopefully they don't because if it's, you know, some, some advisors just make a mistake and they, they fix it after. But if it's something more serious, then the reputational damage is very difficult to overcome. The other thing is, is, you know, happy clients refer other clients. Unhappy clients badmouth you and you're not going to get a good referral source. And every client is a potential referral source. So... You know, the books are all about growing your business. How to get those good referrals is through clients who you've communicated clearly with, whose expectations have been met. And when the expectations are unreasonable, there's dialogue around them so that those unreasonable expectations can be managed.
advisors think of themselves sometimes as, you know, having to do the majority of the speaking in meetings and think that that's a mistake. I think that they need to earn the trust of their clients through listening skills and they need to earn the right to make suggestions by really understanding the client. They need to take the time and make the time to really have proper dialogue with the client to make the client feel sufficiently comfortable to share their personal story with the advisor. If the advisor doesn't get that personal story from each client, they're really going to miss how to service that client in a way that's going to meet those client's goals. Because it's the personal story that shapes the client and shapes their goals and shapes their values. Getting to know the client in a real way and asking open-ended questions and then probing into those answers and really taking the time necessary is crucial to a successful relationship with your clients. That, in a big way, was the impetus to writing Communication Risk because it's the failure to probe into these issues that have resulted in clients being disappointed. And when clients are disappointed, that's when they either move to another advisor at best, or they sue or issue a complaint at worst. So you don't want to lose a lot of clients, even quietly. You'd rather keep clients and make sure that you're understanding them, that you're meeting their needs, and the only way to do that is to really know what makes them tick. People change. Even though their personal story doesn't change, their circumstances change. And that's why the regulator has imposed a, an updated form, and that's why the dealers have these updated forms. It's not so that they can just have a form filled out to get it filled out. It's because people change a lot. People change their jobs. They change their vocations. Like, you're reinventing yourself now every few years. There's also, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't just married once and that, you know, have blended families. And all of that really changes your financial situation. People change their jobs every year or two. So in order to really know a client and to really make sure that you're meeting their needs, you need to have that personal meeting. Because it's really easy to call a client on the phone or email them and ask them. So any changes, it's superficial, right? And clients on the other side of it are also very private. So they're very happy with a quick answer, a quick question and a quick answer. The advisor's happy, the client's happy, but where's the problem? Is that there's no real communication. The client is ultimately gonna be dissatisfied and it may come back to haunt the advisor. So I do think that you miss a lot by not having personal meetings. You also see, as people go through stages in life, how they're changing. You could, you know, meet up with them and they look terrific all of a sudden. They've, you know, shed 20 pounds or 40 pounds, or they've shed a lot of weight and they they look sickly, and you wouldn't have known that from a phone call if they didn't share it with you. But you see them and you're like, oh my God, this person, there's something wrong here. It isn't that they've just gone on a diet. They look unwell. And you need to 
delicately probe into it because if the client is not well, that's going to impact their financial situation and may very well impact what you should be doing on their account. So whether it be health issues, whether it be stage of life that's changing how they're dressed, maybe they've inherited money and you don't even know about it. You know, you can see a lot by meeting the client in person. If they're driving a car that's much more expensive than you think that they can afford, they're trying to save for their retirement and they show up in this brand spanking new, extremely expensive car, well, that's something the advisor should know about. So it's hard to have these conversations over the phone or to communicate them by email. In-person meetings are so very important. If the advisor doesn't know how the client's changed, they can't then advise the client on how the investments should change to meet the new client needs. For example, a client may have lost their job and they're too embarrassed to pick up the phone or even to email their advisor and let them know. And even when the advisor says, how are you? They say that everything's good, no change. It's a very easy answer. However, if somebody's lost their job, they may have a need for liquidity that wasn't there before. If, for example, the client sues later and says, you know, I lost my job a year back and the advisor never even asked me or didn't know and the investments, I've lost money on them, then that's a problem. Or, you know, if a spouse has now a need to be paying for two homes instead of one because there's a breakup in the relationship. Or um, any kind of financial situation that could lead to the need for more liquidity or a lower risk is an issue. Sometimes what happens is, you know, you're taking instructions from one spouse and they're liquidating and pulling out money from joint accounts and you don't realize that that spouse is preparing for a departure. And that can be a huge problem for the advisor when the uh, spouse that remains says, hang on here, didn't you know that... Um, this was unusual behavior and it's a joint account and you have no obligations to call both of us, but maybe that would have been a good idea. If you don't have a relationship with both spouses, it's so weird to now be calling the other spouse. It is just a better circumstance to have relationships with both spouses. You cannot know what is suitable for both spouses if you're only dealing with one of them. And then if you also have one spouse instructing you on the joint account, and that same spouse has trading authorization on the spouse's account, you really never see that other spouse. And I have a whole chapter in Advisor at Risk about what I call the invisible client and the dangers associated for the advisor in servicing a client that they never meet, that they never see, that they have almost no communication with. It's super dangerous for the advisor. It's not a good way to build your business. You've been listening to Ellen Besner, author of the best-selling Advisor at Risk and its sequel, Communication Risk, talking about some steps that you can take to protect your practice. Ellen also spoke with us about what clients, for their part, can do to improve their relationship with you, their advisor. 
If you'd like to hear that conversation, please tune into the Financial Advice for All podcast, available on SoundCloud, Google, iTunes, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can also access it through the front page of advocates.ca or through the financialadviceforall.com website. Thanks for listening.